Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in his plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. We're in Isaiah chapter 30 for our Bible study, actually beginning in chapter uh, 29, verse 17, as we get there. Uh, the title for tonight's message is Turning Up the Volume. Um, I, I don't know if any of you have ever had this experience. If you have uh, young children or if you have um, a family and you've ever been driving somewhere and you're trying to communicate with someone in the back and they're not talking quite loud enough and you actually find yourself reaching for the volume dial on the radio. Has anybody else ever done that in here? It's happened to me on several occasions, you know. Um, in fact, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, we were kind of like in that chaotic, I don't want to call it chaos, let me call it a crisis, uh, that is our home after dinner. You know, when everybody's there and everything's a mess and everything is being planned for the next day and closed out from the day before. And it's really fun. It's actually quite an enjoyable time in our household. Um, but there's a lot going on. And so one of my um, daughters came into the room. I hadn't seen her all day. She's my less, least talkative one of the bunch. And, uh, you know, um, trying to engage in conversation, I was doing dishes, which, you know, don't be shocked, <laughs> anything that's, uh, that's actually the easiest thing to do in my house uh, at that hour, you know, so don't think me special, <laughs> you know, but I was doing dishes, and so the sink is on, I'm one of those people that leave the water running the whole time, from start to finish, even while I'm wiping down the table, I leave the sink on. All the time, medium temperature, I have a well, I'm paying for the electricity, the water is renewable, don't judge me. That's just the way it is. And so, and so I'm there and I'm trying to have a conversation and she doesn't want to talk to me. And I don't know why, we're, we're on good terms, she just, whatever world she's in at this age of her life. And so I'm asking questions and she is replying at like medium, low volume, very short answers. And so as any father would, I try to keep the conversation going. Um, and so I ask the next question and she speaks at medium volume. And so every time she has a phrase, I say, what? And then she says it again at the same volume and I say, what? And then I, I really listen, and she says it again, and then I ask the next question, and she replies at the same volume. And I say, what? And she says it again, and I say, what? And then she says it again, and I finally get it, and then I ask the next question. She says the same thing, and I say, what? And she says the same. I say, what? And then, then this, this is very rare. One of my strengths, I have many weaknesses, but one of my strengths is that I have a very long fuse. I don't have a short temper. I don't get angry very easily, if ever, you know. But finally, something happened inside of me. It was a frustration of not being able to hear her. And I grabbed the dish soap that was right there on the thing when she replied at medium, low volume yet again. And I squeezed it. And it, like a volcano, it just, it just all over the top and down my hand. And I just went, poof. And I said, I can't hear you, you know. And then I took a breath and it was over and it was out. And she replied at full volume, <laughs> the answer to the question that I asked. But then, you know, and then it was just like tense for a moment and we all flowed back into that, okay? 
But what a frustration when you know someone is talking to you, but you can't quite hear what it is that they're saying. And I felt the frustration of that. Now, I don't know if you've ever had the experience with God where you know that he is trying to say something to you. Or maybe you're in a position in your life where you need him to say something to you and you feel like you just can't hear him. That there's some block or there's some thing going on or the noise of the water that's flowing continually or the chaos of your life that's going around on around you. That there's so much background noise that you find that it's choking out the still small voice of God and you just wish that he would talk a little bit louder. Have you ever felt like that? God, say it a little bit louder. And one of the things that I have found about God is that he does not raise his voice. He is very clear in the scripture that his voice is a still, small voice. We're going to see it again in the text that we're in tonight. He doesn't raise the volume. What he does is he calls us into the place or to put in the hearing aid, whatever it is, to get ourselves in a place where we can hear him at the volume that he speaks. (laughs) And so there's a passage in the middle of the book of Isaiah, longest book of the Old Testament, where God speaks to this, and he gives us some instructions, some very practical things in this segment of Scripture, this event in Israel's history, that is instruction for you and I when we find ourselves in the place that we want to hear from God, we need to hear from God, but we feel like he needs to talk louder or we need to listen better because we're not hearing exactly what he's saying. Now, um, without giving you the entirety of the historical background and context out of which this passage comes, what's going on here in this chapter is that there is a condition that Israel as, a, as an entity is in, and then there is a message to them that's given by Isaiah the prophet uh, of instruction, a word of instruction, and then there's a promise attached to the council. So God tells them something that they're to do, and then he gives them a promise if they will do the thing that he says. Now, to lay the context, the condition that the nation was in at this time is that they are about 300 years past the height of their glory. So if you know anything about God's history with his people, God raised up King David and King Solomon, and that was their height. That was the apex of their glory. There was never a time when they were more connected to God, when there was more of a sense of God's presence among them, where where his his voice was heard, the people were in a right place with him. Everything was humming during the days of David and Solomon. But fast forward 300 years... And what all of that wealth and prosperity and health and preservation, what that produced in the people of God was a sense of complacency. They had become familiar with being on the upside of things and they had kind of let their spiritual guard down as an entity and and the things of God had become less and less important though they were still enjoying the benefits of being God's people. And so there was this declension in the spiritual temperature that was happening subtly and slowly over time. 
And God doesn't want his people to be cooling or distancing from him. And he doesn't want us going through the motions of a spirituality or relationship. He wants it to be real, current, and vibrant and living. And so anytime there's a declension, God is going to begin to take steps to draw people back to himself. Hence, he raises up the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah brings a message from God to the people with the intent of drawing them back to the place where they're really depending upon God and they get out of the rut. They were measuring their spirituality by their outward appearance and what they looked like to one another rather than by their experience with God. It was an outward thing and not an inward thing. And the warning that Isaiah is giving to the people is that if you don't get back to the place where God is first in your life and where he is primal, he's the highest priority, then you're going to lose all of the advantages that you have in being his people. It's not punishment, it's natural consequence. That's the message. God's not going to take it away because he's saying, fine, if you're not going to do this, then I'm... That's not how it works. But when we're close to God there is an outgrowth of advantages that come from that relationship. And when we're distant from God, just like a tree that is uprooted from the ground begins to wither, when we, as God's people, become distant from him, there's a natural withering of the advantages, the fruit, the sap, the health, the the vibrancy of life. And so the warning that God is giving is, listen, if you keep going in the direction you're going... It's going to be worse than just outward appearance. You're going to lose even that. You're going to lose every advantage that you have. And so the message is get back. Now, what we have in this portion, this passage, is that God is going to give to them three issues that are keeping them from hearing his voice, keeping them from experiencing him at the level and in the way that he desires them to experience him. There's three things that were true of them and that can be true of us. And if we have issues in these three areas, it's going to affect our ability to hear God. The kitchen sink is on. Someone is screaming to our left. There's music playing on our right. And it's just, we can't hear a message that God is seeking to get across to us. And so Isaiah gives to us those things. And if you're taking notes, uh, the first that he brings up at the end of chapter 29 uh, concerns their attitude. Concerns their attitude. And you'll want to write that uh, down. So if you look with me at chapter 29, verse 17, I'm going to read through the end of the chapter, and then we'll uh, look at the attitude that was affecting the amplitude. It says, Is it not... Yet a very little while, this is Isaiah speaking to the people on behalf of God, that Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be esteemed as a forest. Now, Lebanon was a neighboring country. They were an enemy country. They were not the people of God. And basically, he's saying that there's going to be a flip. 
the, the Lebanon will be fruitful, and the fruitful field, that's Israel by implication, will be esteemed as a forest, overgrown and forsaken. And he says in verse 18, and you'll notice that some of the words uh, tonight are highlighted or underlined and colored. The reason for that is because we have a lot of scripture we're going to go through, and, and I want you to see the words that are highlighted because those are the words that are the most important in terms of uh, pulling our application from. But it says that in that day... The day that things flip, shall the deaf hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The meek also shall increase their joy in the Lord, and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Essentially, those that are little esteemed, those that are considered least spiritual, those are going to enjoy the presence and person of God the most. He says, for the terrible one that is awesome one is brought to nothing and the scorner is consumed and all that watch for iniquity are cut off that's one thing god sees in their attitude he says in verse 21 that make a man an offender for a word so they're laying a snare in their speech for him that reproves in the gate and turn aside the just the person who's Right, the person who's righteous, they turn him aside for a thing of nothing. They, they make nothing or they make something out of nothing and thus they're discrediting someone who God has no problem with. He says, therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. Jacob shall now or shall not now be ashamed, neither shall his face now wax pale. But when he sees his children, the work of my hands, in the midst of him, they shall sanctify my name and sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and shall fear the God of Israel. They also that erred in spirit shall come to understanding and they that murmured shall learn doctrine. And so uh, the first thing that God points out to them, which was a problem that he saw in their midst is that their attitude towards one another was not right. Their attitude towards the people of God was crooked. And what they were doing is that they were spending their spiritual energy watching one another for sinful behavior. They were sin sniffing. Perhaps you've heard that term before, where they were just comparing themselves with each other and looking for faults in their brothers and sisters' lives. They were evaluating the lyrical content of the songs that were being written and looking for things that they could pick apart and criticize and knock down in order to elevate themselves. They were also mudslinging. They were entrapping. They were setting snares for one another, and they were making something out of nothing. It's an interesting thing that how that can happen. I, I don't know if you've ever seen that happen in the world that we live in, uh, where people are just constantly listening for some error in something someone says in order to somehow knock them down and, and, and elevate themselves in the process. Or, or maybe you, at some point, find yourself listening to talk radio, and, and they'll play a clip of something someone said, and then take a word of that and then turn it into something altogether, something that it is not. You know, well, this is what they were doing, but they were doing it in the context of church people. 
uh, I was on the computer, and you know how like sometimes you go on YouTube and it gives you recommended videos, and they put things up according you know to what they think that you'd want to watch based on the things that you've seen in the past. And one of the things, it named the name of a preacher who's alive today, and it says that this preacher, by name, is okay, says, he says that he's okay with homosexuality. And the implication is that this guy is compromised, he's turned his back on the word of God, he's embracing things that God does not embrace. That was the implication in the title, and I thought, well, I want to hear, it's a four-minute clip, I want to hear what the guy said. And so I played the clip. And can I tell you, the man did not say anything that would lead you to the conclusion that was implied in the title of the video. He basically said that he's not surprised by the fact that the Supreme Court of the United States voted in favor of legalizing same-sex marriage. And he said the reason he's not surprised by it is because that the people that are on the Supreme Court don't spend their time debating scripture. They spend their time debating constitutional law that's in the interest of all Americans and that his concept of that or his, his interpretation of that is that the world is going to be the world, but that the church needs to be the church. And that his concern is not for what the world is doing, because the world's always going to be the world. His concern is for what the church is doing in response to it. And that a lot of the reason why liberal causes are gaining ground is because we as the church are failing to do our part to shine as light and be salt in a dark world. Now that's a far cry, isn't it? Because he said that I'm not surprised, that is taking words and villainizing someone because of them. And God saw that happening amongst his people, and he said that because that's happening, there's going to be a flip. Because they felt, the people did, is that the only thing that they had to do to stay spiritually elevated was to push everyone else down. And God says, that's not the way that I am. And the way that he proves that is he brings to their remembrance at the end of that passage, Abraham and Jacob. He says, I'm the God who redeemed Abraham. He said, I want you to remember something. That when I called Abraham, he needed to be redeemed. That when I called Abraham, he was an idol worshiper in a pagan land, a suburb of Babylon. And I called him out of that life and I raised him up and changed him from the inside out. And I did the same thing with Jacob, who his whole life never seemed to fully get it spiritually. I held him in my hand, and I led him, even though he didn't have all things right all the time. And God says, because you're not remembering that not everyone is perfect, and that there's a process of sanctification, and not everyone always has to get it right every time to be considered saved or okay, because of that, God says, if you don't stop it, there's going to be a flip. And the person that you're looking down on is going to hear my voice clearly, and you're going to be considered desolate like an overgrown forest that's forsaken. God is giving them a warning, and he's saying, check your attitude. You're not hearing from God because you're measuring yourself by other people. You're self-satisfied. You've turned your energy inward, and you're fighting against those whom you're supposed to be fighting with, and it's a condition of unhealth. I will warn you, church, 
that any time a Christian or a ministry spends its time criticizing other churches or other ministries, there is an element of unhealth in that. That is not where we're to place our energy. We're to place our energy on where the battle really is. And we're to do that by the love of Christ. So at some point, they stopped seeing God. They started looking at man. And God says, you need to check your attitude. The second thing that God says that they need to check is not just their attitude, but they need to check their altitude. If you're taking notes, you can write down. By the way, anybody remember AAA? Is AAA even still a thing? You know, you'd think that the smart, that's one of the things that the smartphone just completely eliminated the need for, you know. But they used to give you the trip ticks, right? Where you could, if you were going somewhere, you could call them and AAA would give you like help to get where you needed to go. That's kind of what this is. There's three A's here. First one is attitude. Second one is altitude. And it speaks concerning the direction of their steps when they were in need. It says this in chapter 30, verse 1. Notice. He says, Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, that take counsel but not from me. And that cover with a covering, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. And then he expounds on his uh, indictment. He says that walk to go down into Egypt and have not asked at my mouth to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, shall the strength of Pharaoh be your shame And the trust in the shadow of Egypt, your confusion. For his princes were at Zoan, and his ambassadors came to Hanes, and they were all ashamed of a people that could not profit them, nor be a help or profit, but a shame and a reproach. And here's going to be the result of your choice to get counsel and help from Egypt rather than from God. He says that the burden of the beasts of the south and into the land of trouble and anguish, and from whence come the young and old lion... The viper and the fiery flying serpent, they will carry their riches upon the shoulders of young donkeys and their treasures upon the bunches of camels to a people that shall not profit them. In other words, you seek counsel from Egypt, from the world, it's going to be a burden and anguish and a lion and a serpent, and it shall not profit you. For the Egyptians shall help in vain and to no purpose. Therefore have I cried, God says, concerning this, listen, their strength is to sit still. Now go and write it before them in a table and note it in a book that it may be for the time to come forever and ever. In other words, the counsel that I'm giving these people in their condition is counsel that will apply in every generation. Now here's what was going on. Oh, thunder of God, come. Here's what was going on, is that the people of God were in a self-satisfied state. They thought everything was okay spiritually when God was seeing otherwise. But yet, even though they were self-satisfied spiritually, they still needed help. They still came into situations and circumstances in their life where they needed counsel and that they needed covering. There were still issues. There were decisions to make. There were situations that needed navigation, times that they would come into places where they didn't know what to do. Now, does that ever happen to you? That you come into situations where you don't know what to do? Whereas a dad or a mom, you question whether or not what you're doing for your kids is what's best for your kids, and are you doing everything that you can? Maybe you're a young person and and you're in that stage of life where you're trying to make decisions for your future. 
And you know that these are critical decisions because when you set your foot on a path, it's not a path that you can easily you know, transition out of, but you're on that path for the next 20 or 30 years, sometimes for the rest of your life, and you don't know what to do. You don't have clarity, and you need help because there's a decision that needs to be made. Or maybe you find yourself at any age or stage of life where you're in a season of shaping, where God is doing something under the surface of your soul, and you're trying to, in that, work through conditions that are we would consider mental health issues. Maybe you're going through some depression, or you're struggling with some anxiety, or you know some of the other things that are, that are happening, uncertainty, or you're having panic attacks, or that, that kind of thing. And, and all of a sudden, you find yourself in a place where you need some help. Or maybe there is an issue in your life. He says there, not only do they need counsel, but there's also sometimes there's a covering that's needed. Maybe there's a sin issue in your life. Maybe something from your past has crept up that you thought was long gone, but here it comes back again. Or maybe there's something from your past that's been with you the whole time that you've been praying that God would take or you've been trying to distance yourself from, but you can't get away from it. So you need a covering You need something to help you and shield you from having your sin overtake you. What God is saying is that when any of his people come to a position like that, they have a choice. Is that they can either go down to Egypt or they can go up to God. To say it in in language that maybe fits us better, is that you can either go down to Google or you can go up to God is that you have a choice as to where you're going to get your counsel from. Now, Egypt in that day, Egypt was the hub of influence in the known world. A little bit later on in their, in their future, Israel, I'm sorry, Egypt would become the home to the library at Alexandria. It was a, a wisdom center. And, and they kind of had things figured out. They had a humming economy. They had a strong military. They seemed to be insulated from problems. They had a constant source of provision. The economy of the Nile was always fertile, in that crescent and that valley there. And they had strength. And so the temptation was that if you needed help, that you would go to Egypt for help because they had life figured out there in Egypt. The other option would be to go to God. To take your circumstance, to take your issue, and to say, you're God who sees all things. Not only do you see the dynamics of the world I'm living in, but you're the one who made me, that knows me, and that can speak to my situation personally and not in a broad spectrum of things. And what God saw is that they were choosing to get counsel and help from the world rather than to look to God to be the one that would give counsel, instruction, and help. That was the indictment that God gave upon them. They chose. Now, I'm not anti-Google. I I just want to go on the record and say that. Google wins because Google solves problems, right? They give you in .017 seconds the most fitting answer to your question, okay? I use Google. God leads me sometimes to use Google in order to gain insight into the issues that I'm going through. But here's where the line is drawn in that is that Google might be able to provide insight or guidance, but Google cannot provide power or favor to lead me out of the situations that I'm in. And if my eyes are directed towards the help of the world and not towards the help that comes from God, and if my reliance is upon the steps A, B, and C I can get from Google or from a counselor 
and not from what God's Spirit is leading and prompting and speaking into my life, then my priority or my altitude is in the wrong place. I'm going down instead of going up. And God looked at his people then that day and he said that your tendency is that when there's an issue, you don't even ask me. You're not even thinking that way. You're thinking, well, God is concerned with bigger things, different things. He doesn't care about my problems. He can't see my problems. Or he's not interested because maybe my problems are my fault. And so I'm not even going to ask God. I'm just going to go right to flesh and bone. And I'm going to try to get my help from the internet or from a counselor or from some human being, even a good human being. That's where I'm going to go. And God says, that's not the way that you're supposed to go. It's not going to work. He said that your solution is to sit still. Now, we have a tendency as human beings to go down to Egypt. And the reason for that is because when we do it, we feel like we're in control of the situation and we're in control of the timing of the situation. Is that if I get good counsel, then I can do something now and today to help me in the situation that I'm in. And whenever we're in a situation we don't like, what do we want? We want out when? Now. Right, exactly. And so our tendency is to go down because we feel like we can control it. We also have a likewise tendency not to look up because when we look up and we say, God, I'm looking to you, now it's going to require trust, it's going to require patience, and it's going to require leading. Now, you can't have both. You can't both look to the world and look to God. And here's why. Because when we seek to be in the driver's seat in the circumstances of our life, God never interrupts and takes the wheel. He's a gentleman and he waits. We, at the same time, don't want God to grab the wheel because God likes the back roads. And we like the highway. And so we have a natural tendency not to put our trust in him when circumstances arise, but rather to take things into our own hands. And so you find yourself in a position in your marriage where you and your spouse have grown in different directions. And you become different people than you once were, than you once knew, or that you once hoped for. And you find that the rift of that has caused other problems in your marriage, and now it's at a point where you don't know what to do, and you're in the dark, you feel in the situation. You can either begin to take things into your own hands and begin to try to fix it yourself, or you can commit it to God and say, God, would you lead and orchestrate us through this season and bring our hearts back together? Now, if you do the one and you begin to try to manipulate the situation and fix it yourself, I tell you this. You can take this counsel or leave it. It's up to you. You can make it worse, but you probably can't make it better. You can try to work the dials and do different things, but ultimately you have no control over the mindset of somebody else. Or you can look to God and you can ask for his navigation, but in the process of that, now there's a waiting Now there has to be a stillness, there has to be a trust, and there has to be a reliance that in the moments when it's critical that you'll be prompted by his voice or his spirit to lead you and your spouse in a way that will bring things back to where they're supposed to be, back to center. The same holds true for every circumstance that you might find yourself in. A teenager, you find a 
fake profile, a second profile that you didn't know about on their social media, or a lifestyle that they've chosen to embrace that you didn't know about and certainly are not in favor of. Any situation that you find yourself in, even if it's something in your mind or something with the health of your body, you and I, we have the choice of whether or not we're going to get our counsel, our answers, and our help from the world, or whether we're going to go to the one who can help with all things, who calls himself the I am, and says to us that you shall have no other gods before me, not because he's narcissistic, but because he's the only one that's able to help. Their altitude was wrong. The third thing that he calls them to check is their aptitude in verse 9. Not just their attitude or their altitude, but their aptitude. Watch this, verse 9. He says that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children that will not hear the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord is the word of the Lord, the written word, the recorded word, the Bible, if you will. Which say, on the contrast to wanting his word, they say to the seers, the pastors... See not, and to the prophets, prophesy not unto us right things, but speak to us smooth things. Tell us what we want to hear. Prophesy deceits. God says, get you out of the way, turn aside out of the path, cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. Wherefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and stay not thereon, therefore this iniquity shall be to you as a breach ready to fall, swelling out in a high wall whose breaking comes suddenly at an instant. You ever seen um, a landscaping wall that is in an erosion path? And you watch over time, a period of months or years, you watch the middle of that wall just begin to slowly swell a little at a time, a little at a time. And God says, listen, the further you get from my word, the more that herniated wall is growing out of its place and it's just a matter of time before it gives way and it will come to a point where he says that he will break it in an instant. It will break as the breaking of the potter's vessel that is broken in pieces. He shall not spare so that there shall not be found in the bursting of it assured, not a piece, to take fire from the hearth or to take water withal out of the pit. There's the warning that you're going to lose the advantages of your life. He's talking here about the importance of the word of God and our, or or its rather, right place within our lives. There's a a pastor up in Rochester where I'm from. He's a Calvary Chapel pastor, and he was uh, foundational in, 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 in planting Calvary chapels on the East Coast. His name is Bill Gallatin. And when I was a brand new Christian, I would listen to the, to the radio station, the Christian radio station up there, and I would hear him teach. And he had this, this way, this simple, uh, he's been here before, but it's been a, a number of years. Um, he has a simple uh, way, and he's got a very distinct voice, as most pastors do, or probably everybody does, but you know, you're used to hearing it on the radio. And I remember as a new Christian, I had a job for this landscaping company, and we were working in uh, his area. I didn't know it was his area, um, but but we were doing a house in this place. And all of a sudden, I hear my supervisor, the the person that was training me, he's speaking with the next-door neighbor of the house where we're working. And I hear the voice of the man, and and it caught me. And I thought, that voice is familiar. I know that voice. And so I started listening more intently, And I realized that's Pastor Bill Gallatin. 
Like, I know that voice. And so I came over. I'd never seen him before, and I had the same reaction we all do when we see someone we hear. We're like, whoa, I did not picture that, you know, <laughs> your face. And anyway, and I heard, I heard, him, uh, I heard him speak, and, I, and I, I went up to him. I said, excuse me, are you Pastor Bill Gallatin? And he said, hey, yes, I am, you know. And, uh, and, then, and then I said, I listen to you on the radio. I'm really blessed by the messages that I hear. I, I appreciate it. Wow. And he, said, he looked at me, and he goes, I'm going to go with your company. That's confirmation from Jesus. You know, and I was like, wow, you know. But, but, but there was something about his voice that I recognized because I was familiar with his words. I was familiar with his words, so I recognized his voice. Okay, so you say, well, what does that have to do with the Bible? Everything. Because God has revealed who he is through what is written in the Bible. He has put his fingerprints on it. He stamped it with his authority and his his mark of authenticity. And he has told us that we can rely upon what has been written and translated in such a way that when we read it, we can mark it as truth. And that it will reveal to us who God is. Now, the more of God that we know because we're relating to him in his word, the easier it becomes to recognize his voice when he speaks to us because we know his ways. I know my wife. We're going to be married 20 years this year. We've been together even longer than that. We go back to being high school sweethearts, and and I really know my, my wife. And so there are certain things about her that I have had to learn that don't come from her words, but come from knowing her. Like, for instance, anytime she starts a sentence with the words, um, or oh, She's about to either ask me for something or ask me to fix something. It's without fail. If it starts with um or oh, she needs something or something is broken. And so when I hear it, there's an automatic, it gets my attention right away. It's just right there. You know, she, she, she started the sentence that way. Another thing is that she is fiercely positive. There is not one word that comes out of her mouth that goes below the line of positive into the realm of negative. Everything is positive no matter what. So when I say, how did, enter name of child, do on their testing for the year? And she says, they did great, you know. No. I have to listen to what she says. And if there's a pause, even the slightest pause before she answers, and if there is anywhere in the medium range of a tone of voice in the great or the excellent, then I know what happened. And I say, let me see the paper. And then I see, I get the real story. You know? But see, these are things that I had to learn over time. It used to be like, oh, great, they did great, great. You know? But then I would see the paper and I'd go, this ain't great. <laughs> this ain't even good. You know, <laughs> this is bad. You know, and so I had to learn from knowing her how to interpret what she was saying. It couldn't come from what she was saying. It had to come from what she was saying plus having a knowledge of her. I've learned many, many, many things about my wife. If she makes a dish, and I ask her what's in it, and she begins to tell me the ingredients, if she uses the word little, it means exactly the opposite. If she says a little cheese, 
it's half the block of the cheese from BJ's. If she says a little maple syrup, it means you need to water it down a little bit or cut it with something, you know, because it's really sweet. You know, I'm exaggerating mildly, you know. But, but my point is this. My point is, is that you have to know God in order to understand his voice. And what he has given to us is he's given us his word. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul says this. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. He says that you present your bodies, give your entire life to God, which is your reasonable service. And then he says this, listen carefully. He says, and be not conformed to this world, but rather be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind, that's your mental faculties, so that you can prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, the way that God has given to us in order for us to renew our minds is that he's given us his word. And if we are distant from his word, if we're not reading his word, if we're not constantly immersing our minds in who God is according to his word, then we're not going to recognize his voice because it's just that still. And you've got to know God in order to recognize God's voice. Thus the Bible is paramount. God said to them, you despise my word and you're listening to the kind of messages that pollute who I am and they give you what you want but that don't tell you who I am. And I will tell you this, church, because I love messages, that if the Bible is your staple and messages that you hear from preachers, pastors, or otherwise are a supplement, then you're in a good place. But if messages are the staple and the Bible is only the supplement that you get little dribs and drabs of, then you're in danger of having an aptitude that will quench the amplitude of God's voice. It's essential that we be students of the Word of God so that we know the heart of God that helps us recognize the voice of God. What is your aptitude? Well, he goes on to give us the solution, and he says that the solution is in solitude and quietude. Verse 15. He says, For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and in rest you shall be saved. Now, returning means a change of direction. Meaning that God says that if your attitude and your altitude and your aptitude are out of adjustment, then that means that there needs to be a change in your life, a change that you decide to make. That there's some things that need to be adjusted, some rhythms that need to be interrupted, and a different direction that you need to move in. You need to go to the right place. You need to return, and that in that returning, there has to be a rest. Rest, it means to trust Him. So there's a turning to God, and then a trusting in God, rather than entrusting in your position, the comforts of your spiritual uh, uh, blessings, all the other things that we've been talking about. And he says, for in quietness and in confidence will be your strength, but you would not. But you said, you didn't want to return, you didn't want to rest, you didn't want to listen to the counsel of God. You said, no, for we will flee upon horses, therefore shall you flee. We will ride upon the swift, therefore they that pursue you shall be swift. One thousand shall flee at the rebuke of one, at the rebuke of five shall you flee, till you be left as a beacon upon the top of a mountain, and as an ensign 
or a sign upon a hill. God says, listen, if you continue in the way that you're going, your devices are going to fail. Your intellect, your wisdom, your strategy, the counsel that you receive from counselors that are not led of me, all of those things are not going to work. But watch the hope that God gives in verse 18. He says, and therefore will the Lord wait that he may be gracious unto you, and therefore will he be exalted, that he may have mercy upon you, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all they that wait for him. Have you ever considered that the reason why God is not letting your plans prosper is because he is waiting to be gracious to you? Now, sometimes we think that, God, you're frustrating my plans because you hate me. You know, or because you're just wicked and evil and, and, and whatever and you just want to frustrate me and, and the whole thing. But God's saying, listen, no, the reason why I'm not letting your plans prosper is because if your plans prosper, you're going to miss out. So I'm going to wait until you come to the end of your own devices so that I can be gracious to you. He says, for the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will be very gracious unto you. Listen, at the voice of your cry, when he shall hear it, he will answer you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet shall not your teachers be removed into a corner anymore, but your eyes shall see your teachers. Listen in verse 21, glorious promise. He says, and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way. Walk ye in it when you turn to the right hand and when you turn to the left. In other words, here's going to be the advantage that you're going to find in your life if you will put your complete trust in me. Turn off the sink. Turn off the music. Shut down the noise. Give me your undivided attention, God says, that in every circumstance, situation, and issue that you face within your life, it's not going to be Uh, do this, then do this, and then do this list of things to do. A, B, it's not going to work like that. He says, but while you're living your life, you're going to be prompted by my voice to act in a particular way in the moment that it comes. I'm going to speak to you, and I'm going to lead you in the moment through the things that you're going through. Now, that's an incredible promise, But if I'm going to lay my life on that promise, it comes with an incredible risk. Because it means I'm forsaking every other avenue or outlet of seeing a solution. And I'm trusting only that God is going to lead me through it in his timing and in his perfect way. That's hard. He says, but you're going to hear a word. And then he says, these are also going to be the advantages. I'm not going to read all the verses, but verse 22, great promise. He says, you live this way, you're going to see that the things that you have been relying on are like a menstruous rag. You're going to hate them. You're going to wish you never went on Google. You're going to wish you never asked for advice from someone else. You're going to wish you never turned to a substance for help because you're going to see that the help that I give you is so good, you're going to hate everything else. He says in verse 23 and 24 that he's going to give rain to your seed, meaning that all of the things that you've been sowing into your life spiritually that you have yet to see a return on, God's going to pour rain on that seed and you're going to see it thrive and prosper. He says in verse 25 that there's going to be rivers and streams of waters in the day of great slaughter. It means when all hell is breaking loose in the world around you, you're going to be watered and satisfied abundantly by the presence of the Spirit in your life. 
He says in verse 26 that the light of the moon will be like the light of the sun and the light of the sun will be sevenfold. It means that the light that you will have to see clearly where you are and where you're going is going to be so clear that it'll be just beyond what you could ever expect. And then notice this. He says, if you skip down to verse 29, he says that you will have a song as in the night when a holy solemnity is kept and gladness of heart as one that goes with a pipe to come into the mountain of the Lord to the mighty one of Israel, you're going to have great joy. And then verse 30, he says, and the Lord shall cause his glorious voice to be heard. See the promise? The Lord will cause his glorious voice to be heard and shall show the lightning down of his arm with the indignation of his anger and with the flame of a devouring fire with scattering and tempest and hailstones. Why? For through the voice of the Lord, through a walk with him, a relationship with him, a hearing of him in a response to what he says through the vibrant, living, current walk in the Spirit, shall the Assyrian be beaten down and smote with a rod. God is going to win the battle. God is going to overcome your enemies. God is going to see you through to a solution of the issues that are plaguing you and keeping you up at night or that are causing you to worry. God is going to give you victory in the battle. He's going to fight for you. So here's my message to you tonight. A quick and swift conclusion. We're going to land like the Concord. Listen carefully. If you are having trouble hearing God's voice, if you know that he wants to speak to you, but it's unclear and you can't quite make out what he's going to be saying, then check your attitude, check your altitude, check your aptitude, then find some solitude and you'll have amplitude. And that's my beatitude. <laughs> Listen, God is committed to making us whole. He says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And God is absolutely committed to making you completely whole, not partial. He doesn't do half works in people. He does whole works in people. And so what that means is that if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a current of God's Spirit in your life that is moving you towards wholeness because He wants you to be whole. And everything that God does and allows in your life is moving you toward that end. Which means that the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, the trials, the difficulty, and the pain, the relational struggles that you're going through, the anxieties that come with raising kids or keeping a job or paying bills, the issues with, that come with a spinning and uncontrollable mind or mental issues, every piece of it, is a tool in the hand of God that's working wholeness in your life. It's a current that's moving you to the place where you don't trust in anything but Him so that you stop resisting that current by going your own way, but rather you surrender to that current. And it's in the surrender that you begin then to see the work of God go forth. 
If you don't know God here tonight, or maybe you know him in the sense that you're saved, but you don't really know his person, then you can misinterpret the things that you're going through in your life to think that God is against you. But if you really know him, you begin to recognize that those things, those issues that you're going through, that those are actually the grace of God in your life that are seeking to bring you to the place of surrender and trust so that wholeness can be completed within your life. And I would just invite you here as we close the service tonight. Maybe you're here and there is something in you that you say, you know what, my attitude towards the things of God has been a little bit haughty, been a little bit high-minded. I've been living by comparing myself with others. I've been measuring my spirituality based on what I see me doing and what everyone else not doing. And I'm standing in a place where I'm a little bit distant from God. Or maybe you say, you know what, there is something in me that my, my tendency is to go down to Egypt for counsel. I'm not going up to God. I've been looking the wrong way. Maybe you're the person that you say, my appetite has been more towards hearing what I want to hear. Not really that much for the word of God, what he wants to say to me. Maybe tonight you say, you know what, Lord, I, I want to hear your voice. And I'm tired of saying what? And I'm frustrated at the constant gnaw that there's something being spoken, but I can't quite make out what it says. Maybe tonight you say, you know what, I want to be the one that returns and that rests. I want to be the one that hears a word in the moment that says, this is the way, walk in it. I want to be the one that has the seed that I've sown watered and to begin to reap the blessing of what I've sown into my life for all of these years. I want to be the one that sees with perfect light so that what's been a forest can become a fruitful vine. And I'd invite you, if you just have me maybe pray for you tonight, if you're in that place at all, if you would just stand, if you'd take a step of courage and say, you know what, I want to hear his voice. And I feel like he's been more resisting towards me than speaking to me. Father, we come to you tonight in Jesus' name. And as much as we know, as much as we can in ourselves return, oh Lord, tonight we desire to make that change. And we ask that by the illuminating power and by the grace of your Holy Spirit's work in our life, that you would illuminate those areas where our attitude, our altitude, or our aptitude has gone out of adjustment and that we need to be more surrendered and fully trusting towards you. So would you help us tonight, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, that we might be fully surrendered and that we might have childlike trust from this moment forward in our relationship with you. For I know that you see the path, the hearts, the lives of those standing before you now. And I know that it's with perfect love that you're doing all things in their life. So cause us to hear your glorious voice that the Assyrian might be beaten and that we might know your presence, your power, and your spirit flowing in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together and worship the Lord. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so that you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback. 
So if you would, leave a review in iTunes or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.